Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the esoteric dimensions in the life and psychological theories of the great Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. With me today is Gary Lachman. Gary is the author of over 20 books on the intersection of esoteric culture and the Western intellectual tradition. These include biographies of Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, P.D. Uspensky, Emanuel Swedenborg, Aleister Crowley, and many more. Among his books is Jung the Mystic, the Esoteric Dimensions of Carl Jung's Life and Teachings. And now we'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, once again, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeffrey. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, really one of the most uh, fascinating characters. I have had guests on my program who say that Carl Jung may be the most brilliant uh, thinker of the 20th century. Well, I'm sure he, he I'm sure he wouldn't argue with them that much, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's certainly certainly important important one for me. That's true. There are a number of people who would say that. No, I thought absolutely Freud wouldn't have been one of them, but you know. Well, well, it's interesting because I think Freud and Jung are both contenders for, I would say, being in the top half dozen uh, important thinkers of the 20th century. I think it's true. I think, I think during their lifetimes, they were sort of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones because, um, you know, Freud was the most famous uh, psychologist in the world and then Jung was the second most famous. And, and then and Freud, Freud died, he uh, took the, you know, took that spot. Well, the interesting thing, uh, from my point of view, uh, having sort of come up as a student of psychology, is that today in academia, both Freud and Jung are pretty much ignored, it's certainly in psychology departments, maybe not so much in psychiatry. Oh, I mean, I haven't been in academic context of psychology in years, but I, when I was in university a long time ago, um, I asked about that, and they said, no, you know, we, we don't, we don't, you, you, might, you might get him in, uh, a sort of comparative literature class. I mean, Freud, actually, not not really Jung at all. No, Jung's kind of, um, I guess he's been marginalized into the New Age alternative, you know, alternative thought uh, camp. Um, although when the Red Book uh, was published, um, oh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years or so ago, I was surprised that it got a long review in the New York Times, because usually they, they didn't pay much attention to Jung at all. And you know, when I was an undergraduate in psychology back in 1969, I helped found the Psychology Student Association at the University of Wisconsin, big Midwestern school. And uh, one of our demands at, at that time was that the university institute courses in Freud. Uh, we thought Freud was important, but Jung would have been even a bridge too far for us uh, at, at that time. Uh, but we're going to focus today on the esoteric dimensions of Jung's work. That's probably why he was more marginalized uh, even than Freud, and uh, perhaps why he's uh, by many people considered greater than Freud. Well, I think certainly in, I say, the alternative uh, world. And uh, I mean, uh, I mean, Freud, I guess his heyday uh, was probably like the 20s and the 30s. Um, and then by the time 1940s and maybe into the 50s, he was sort of picked up in popular culture a great deal. I mean, because we watch a lot of films like Spellbound or some other films where they have like a Freudian background. And it was kind of like it explained lots of things. But um, Jung came into his own um, in the 1960s. He was, I mean, even the Beatles liked him. You know, he was on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. So he's certainly sort of in the, the popular popular cultural world. I mean, the, the highbrow uh, world or the mainstream intellectual world didn't really care for him very much. And there's all the business of, about him being associated with, with Nazi Germany and things of that sort, that it's all a very kind of muddled situation. Uh, and that didn't, that didn't uh, do well for him in, in the mainstream camp. Well, since you bring it up, I think it's important to point out that uh, you, you go quite far in your book to uh, 
prove that Jung was uh, very far from being a Nazi. If anything, he was an anti-Nazi. Well, yeah, he certainly wasn't a Nazi, but I, but I, I think he did make some injudicious statements uh, at, at a time um, about sort of the racial unconscious and things of that sort that sadly, you know, easily picked up and, and put to odious uses. And much like Nietzsche as well. I mean, Nietzsche wasn't alive at the time, but uh, a lot of Nietzsche's ideas were picked up by uh, sort of uh, Nazi uh, Nazi ideologues and sort of used for their purposes, but if you actually go back to the sources, they argue against. And I, at some point, I mean, Jung was kind of on their hit list, and his his books were being burned and things of that sort. So, um, but uh, now he did he, he did make and you know, the whole sort of thing where he was involved with uh, the journal uh, of of, of the, the psychological journal that had been taken over by by the Nazi uh, sort of, you know, hacks, and um, he stayed on rather than, you know, cutting his relationships with them. He stayed on in order to have uh, some of the, some Jewish psychologists have their work printed and things of that sort. So he's kind of like, you know, fighting on, on the right side, but in the wrong camp, as it were. So both Freud and Jung were very important in the 20th century because they emphasized the role of the unconscious. I think they really showed that uh, so much of our behavior that we think we're in conscious control and we've had the rational enlightenment and so on, uh, Freud and Jung pointed out that uh, largely we are being driven by behavioral patterns or uh, archetypes or complexes of which we are not really conscious. Oh, this is this is certainly it. I mean, they, you know, much as Darwin didn't really discover evolution, but he managed to put the idea together in, in a nice package and, and communicate it clearly. Likewise with Freud, he didn't really discover the unconscious, but he put it together um, in a way that, uh, you know, was communicated very clearly. And that was one of the main ideas that, yes, you know, a uh, rational man, uh, 18th century enlightenment man who was, you know, uh, in control of his fate and all that, and this was something that both of them felt was a kind of hubris on, on modern man, and that, you know, there were powers uh, under the surface that um, were, if not absolutely in control, were certainly motivating us uh, but in ways that we didn't really understand. But I think there's a big difference between the two, because where Freud pretty much saw the unconscious as this kind of uh, basement or, or kind of cellar where, you know, you, a lot of stuff you didn't want, you threw down there. Uh, you didn't quite get rid of it, but you got it out of your conscious mind. Um, so there wasn't really anything in the unconscious that wasn't first in consciousness and you pushed it away down there. Whereas uh, for Jung, it was a much different sort of thing. It was sort of the source and the matrix of consciousness. Consciousness rose out of this un- unconscious uh, uh, source, uh, which for him was creative and, and productive and, and uh, it, you know, fundamentally positive. Well, uh, let's start by uh, talking about Jung's childhood. I think it's very important to emphasize his relationship with his mother, who seemed to be an unusual person by all accounts. Well, I mean, the whole idea of um, Jung as a mystic or uh, Jung uh, uh, having um, uh, a, a sort of relationship to the occult uh, starts with his mother. His mother uh, was someone who uh, was very, very interested in spiritualism. Um, she took part in seances, uh, and she herself um, used to go into these strange kind of states where she seemed to become another person. Uh, she would speak in a different voice, and she would say things that were... Uh, seemed deeply meaningful. Most of the time, she wasn't like that. You know, she was sort of, you know, more or less regular housewife, uh, housefrau. Uh, but she would slip into this other uh, kind of state and and turn into another personality. And this was something that Jung experienced himself when when he was uh, young. He had this kind of uh, personality number two that um, he he saw as sort of an 18th century uh, kind of nobleman and uh, who was a much more um, uh, masterful. And and uh, powerful uh, you know figure than who he was at the time uh, you know a, a young boy and uh, again you know uh, Jung he plays I mean one of the reasons why I wrote the, my book about Jung was that he 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 played his sort of occult cards very close to his chest for a, a great deal of his career he didn't sort of want this to get out and it's understandable you know it it, it would it would hurt his career and it has. Uh, uh, and it did, so it makes sense that he did that. But this is sort of stuff you have to kind of look for. And, and uh, I mean, late in life, when he did that uh, oral biography, uh, autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, it, it all kind of came out. But er- earlier than that, he didn't really, um, he wasn't that forthcoming with it. It was something that he kind of kept in the shadows. 
And I, th- I think it's because he felt that his discoveries or his descriptions of what he called the collective unconscious and the archetypal processes and the importance of individuation, he regarded these as legitimate scientific discoveries. Well, this is the thing. He's always saying, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a mystic, but also I'm not an artist. I'm hair doctor professor. I'm doing science here, and this is phenomenology. I'm just, you know, I'm just giving uh, an empirical account of what I've discovered and things of that sort. And so he was constantly sort of hammering away at that. And um, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's sort of like the, the, the psychologist doth protest too much, you know, because he, he sort of does it a little bit too much, and that, that made me suspect that, well, you know, Obviously, there's something there that you 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 you're arguing against. You you actually have a you know uh, a predilection for these sorts of things. And uh, some schools of uh, sort of renewed uh, effort within Jungian community too kind of get back to him as saying, yes, he did all this this great work with uh, um, sort of uh, free association tests and things of that sort early early days when he was at the Bogotsky, uh clinic in Zurich. So he was doing kind of hard empirical you know, psychological science, but in the background, I mean, there's all this occult stuff there. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, that's not so different, I think, from uh, many people today who consider themselves uh, psychical researchers or explorers of of the esoteric. It's kind of you walk a fine line uh, between uh, plunging into some sort of uh, dark rabbit hole and doing real science. It seems as if there's there's a a balance that that needs to be struck. I think William James encountered that is as well, and he came up with this notion of radical empiricism. No, it's true, but I think in James's day uh, there was a much more um, openness and tolerance for what we would call sort of parapsychology or, or, or uh, you know, it was sort of spiritualism and and things of that sort, and mysticism. I mean, you had people like. Uh, Henri Bergson, who was uh, in his day as a famous uh, intellectual as Freud or anybody like that, and, and he, he wrote openly about his interest in uh, what we call the paranormal and things of that sort. Again, William James was another one. Um, but today, it's you know, you, you really get uh, a, a viciously attacked, or you can be viciously attacked by uh, you know, the, the, the defenders of science, the Richard Dawkins types and all that, for having any kind of um, sympathy with this sort of thing. And if you're in the academic world, you tend to have to get tenure first before you, before you can come out in the open and, and uh, talk about these things. I mean, or or you're, you don't take that route. You're, you know, you're an outsider like myself. I'm not associated with any university or uh, you know, uh, academic standing, and I'm just kind of on my own, and you, know, you kind of do it yourself. But then often you just, you know, nobody pays attention to you because you're just some outsider you know, writing books about this stuff. Well, I suppose I'm in the same position as you in that regard. <laughs> well, we're not alone. I think there's quite a few of us. <laughs> well, uh, but this issue of the significance of the paranormal in psychological theory is sort of the uh, fulcrum that uh, divided Freud and Jung. They they argued over this. Well, it, yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, there's the famous story uh where uh, the the poltergeist in in Freud's uh, bookcase, uh, when Jung is visiting Freud um, in in Vienna, and they're having a conversation about the occult or paranormal and so on and so on, and basically Freud's saying it's all rubbish, that kind of thing, and Jung is getting increasingly upset at this. You know, he he loves Freud, he wants to, you know, he he sees him as a kind of father figure and a mentor, but at the same time, he ha- you know he has his own ideas about these things, and he feels that Freud is just being too too intolerant and too easily dismissive and he's, he's building up and building up and then suddenly there's a bang in, in, in the, um, the bookcase and you know Freud kind of like what was that and Jung said oh there's you know there's uh, basically um, an exterior catalytic phenomena which is his long winded circumlocution for a poltergeist and Freud you know says oh no it's Tosh it's just a coincidence he said no sir it was not and there'll be another one now and then bang it happens again and there's a description where he says Freud was aghast and I always think of like, you know, the cigar dropping out of his mouth and the eyebrows going up or something like that. And, um, and he was afraid of Jung after that. He was afraid because he said, God, he can make these things happen. And right then and there, he was convinced that it, it really happened. But then when Jung went back to Zurich and then a little bit of time passed, he wrote him a letter saying, well, while you were here, you had me half convinced. But since then, I've you know, thought about it and he can explain it and all this kind of thing. 
Um, but I mean, Freud himself, you know, believed in telepathy. He believed in all these things. I mean, he wrote papers on it. Uh, he carried out experiments with his daughter on it. But he he didn't want it to be part of psychoanalysis uh, because in the early days of psychoanalysis they were kind of the occultists and spiritualists were sort of unwanted fellow travelers with the, the psychoanalysis there because they were basically you know working on the same terrain you know the, the mind the psyche and all this hidden parts of the mind and um, Freud even says that he got a lot of you know letters he got requests to write for some sort of spiritualists or you know paranormal journals at the time and he he, t he turned down these requests because he didn't want psychoanalysis being associated with it but he actually you know um, unofficially, you know, believed in it and all that. And I mean, I wrote an article a while back for Fortean Times about how Freud was afraid of the occult because he believed in it, but he didn't want it. He didn't want to admit that he believed in it, and he didn't want to actually. He he felt if you if you admit that in, where do you stop? You know, if if you admit telepathy, if you admit that kind of thing happening, and he had more than one experience of what Jung would call synchronicity and more than one experience of a kind of thought transfer between himself and one of his patients. But he was afraid of the kind of, you know, you, you, that, that, that was like the, the thin edge of the wedge, you know, wedge. You get that in, and then suddenly, you know, everything goes. And so uh, against, I mean, it was kind of like the pious lie. I mean, he wanted to maintain uh, the sanctity and, 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 and kind of the stability of psychoanalysis as an empirical science. And in order to do that, he had to say, okay, guys, we know this is true, but let's not talk about it. <laughs> Obviously, that wasn't enough for Jung, and and Freud and and Jung had a yeah, really uh, serious breakup, and, and especially because Jung was regarded as the crown prince of the psychoanalytic movement at at that time. No, this is true. I mean, uh, Freud was all ready for him to uh, take over, and in the early days, Jung was kind of. Uh, Freud's bulldog, as T. H. Huxley was uh, considered for Darwin. He went. He went to bat for Freud. Uh, he fought the good fight, uh, and he, he. Jung was an enormously um, vital, um, creative individual, and he put all of his energy and all of his vitality into promoting psychoanalysis. You know, editing journals. You know, uh, getting conferences together, arguing. You know, taking on uh, Freud's opponents and arguing them and all that. And um, Freud wanted him to inherit. You know the throne, as it were. Uh, one reason was that he 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 wanted he wanted someone other than someone Jewish to take over because it was increasingly his own circle uh, in Vienna. Um, most of them were Jewish, and uh, it was it was this kind of thing that the Nazis would say later on in the 30s that oh Freud psychoanalysis it's Jewish science. So he wanted a good you know um, Protestant uh, like you know like Jung uh, to uh, an Aryan uh, kind of to to take it over. And Jung was all ready to do it, but, you know, he, had, he was a genius himself. You know, he had his own um, things to uh, pursue. And the break came when he wrote uh, his first major book, uh, Symbols of Transformation. I think it was the, the last way it was translated, the last title. And uh, he kind of hides, you know, there's the, uh, the first few parts of it. Uh, he's more or less going along, you know, standard Freudian kind of lines. But then you get to the incest theory kind of thing. And it's no... Jung can't, he can't stay with it anymore, he, he, the, the whole sort of sexual repression can't be the only source of neuroses and all that. Obviously it can be, and it is in many cases, but it's not the only one, and the incest sort of motif is, is an archetypal motif of a kind of return to the source, a return to the unconscious, rather than a literal, you know, desire to sleep with your mother, that kind of thing. And that, that kind of finally comes out towards the end of the book, and, this, he, and he even says that he... Um, it took him months and months and months to, to finish the book. He put off, you know, finishing it because he knew this would this would make the break, and that's exactly what happened. Now, another important aspect of Jung's development, I think, is his uh, reaction or rebellion against his father, who was a Protestant minister, along with uh, several uncles. Yeah, I mean, again, like, uh, like there's many parallels with uh, Nietzsche as well, and the um, the, the Jungian uh, psychologist Anthony Storr, who's written uh, a British uh, psychologist, written quite a bit about Jung. He he brings this out. Uh, in many of the things he's written, where, yes, I mean, they both came from families where, you know, m the father and many of the, the male figures in the family were, were in the church. And uh, the thing with Jung's father is that um, he, um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't discuss any of these issues. I mean, it, just, it was just something he accepted. This is what he did, and he accepted the faith on, you know, just uh, uh, took it at face value. And Jung was one of these 
uh, individuals. And um, he actually he was very religious. He had a strong religious sense and a strong sense of actually the, the living God, you know. But his father wouldn't answer. He wouldn't he wouldn't talk with any of this sort of thing at all. And uh, he kind of felt that his father had just sort of cut himself off from from any of that kind of thing. His mother was much more open to these sorts of things. So she, because of her uh, her interest and her sort of pursuit of spiritualism, that kind of stuff. I don't think, his father wasn't really interested in that kind of thing. He doesn't really, he, he didn't partake in the seances and, and things of that sort. And uh, speaking of Jung's mother, it, I gather from your book that uh, the sense is that her side of the family was either uh, touched with psychic gifts or psychological disturbances, or as is often the case, both. You could say all, all the strange stuff came from uh, his, you know, his mother's side of the family, and there were the couple famous. Um, accounts of uh, sort of poltergeist or strange activity. There was the one where um, uh, it was a big dining room sort of table and um, they were in another room and they suddenly heard this big crack and they go in and they see the, this oak table had cracked against the seam. It wasn't like along the seam and then uh, it wasn't as if, oh well, it was just the wood drying because it was old already and the wood was all dry and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, another one was um, there was a knife that uh, again was a similar like a, a bang, a kind of bang sound, and the look, Jung was looking around to see what it could have been. And inside a cupboard, uh, there was a, a, a carving knife that had broken into you know discrete pieces. Uh, and he took it to uh, he took it to a cutler, and then the, 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 the fellow said, "Well, the only way you could have done this was like put in a vice and kind of you know you know do it you know uh, purposely crack the kind of thing." And he he sent that to J. B. Ryan. He he sent that um, the, the the remnants of, of the knife to the the famous um, you know parapsychological uh, researcher J. B. Ryan at Duke University. Um, so yeah, I mean, and again, his first um, his uh, sort of thesis. Uh, you know, the psychology of so-called occult phenomena. Um, it's, it's, it's an account of his experiences studying um, a medium in seances, but he doesn't say that it's his cousin. It's a cousin of his that, you know, uh, so it was all in the family, but he, he keeps a discreet distance from it. And again, this is something that only came out sort of later on. Uh, so he didn't, I mean, he wanted to study these things scientifically, but he didn't want to show that he was, you know, really involved in it himself. Like, I, I guess the idea that this would uh, appear to sort of prejudice him in its favor. Mm -hmm. And now you're talking about his doctoral dissertation, I presume, for his medical degree. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that was it. So that was like his, his kind of entree into the world was about that. And again, it wasn't unusual because uh, you've said William James, other people were studying these kinds of things. Uh, in the early, there's a wonderful book called The Discovery of the Unconscious by um, Henri uh, Ellenberger. And um, it, it's basically the history of, of, you know, how we've come to understand the unconscious. And then it, it, it arises out of many ways out of sort of spiritualism. It arises out of people like Swedenborg and, and, and Mesmer and people like that in the study of animal magnetism. And, you know, where, uh, uh, we have the word mesmerize, but we, we use it in, as a kind of alternative to hypnotize. But in actual Mesmer's day, he believed there was some real kind of fluid, you know, some kind of, you know, physical kind of thing that he was able to project onto his uh, patients. And it was through that that he was curing them. But it, it later turned out that actually he was putting them into these trances. And, and the, the cure was come out of that. But um, one of his disciples, you know, basically clicked that there wasn't anything to do with any kind of magnetism, any kind of magnetic rays coming out of the Mesmer's figures. It was somehow the passes were putting the patient into this trance. And then uh, the patient's conscious mind would be asleep, but his unconscious mind would be awake and would respond to questions put to him, and also was able to do things that he couldn't do when he was conscious. And so, this again, so there you, there you go, kind of opening into the un, uh, unconscious there. And I think both Freud and, and Jung, I think Freud more than Jung, they sort of uh, delved into using hypnotism for a while, and then they kind of, uh, I guess, when they developed the dream theory and that kind of thing, uh, the free association, they, they didn't use it as much. 
Well, I think if we look at the historical context of both Freud and Jung, you, you have a situation in which spiritualism and mesmerism are uh, widely spread in the population. There are numerous reports everywhere of paranormal activities associated with these things. And at the same time, 19th century materialism is really strong, and you have many leaders in the uh, academic scientific community saying this is all nonsense and superstition, and I don't care uh, how many people testify to it, it's not true. Well, that's the same thing today. I mean, uh, you, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing today where uh, no matter how many accounts uh, you can come up with, they'll say, oh, that's just anecdotal. Uh, and I mean, the, the thing is, I think uh, many people have realized that these sorts of phenomena, they're not, um, they don't really like the kind of laboratory setting uh, because they're not something you can just kind of turn on and off. And they have much to do with, you know, the, the psychology of the person involved, the context, their emotional state and all that sort of thing. And so they're more kind of attuned to our emotional sorts of states than to some kind of, you know, power you, oh, okay, I can turn it on and off. Not to say that people don't exhibit it uh, in kind of laboratory conditions, but they're not best, the best conditions for that. So you're, you're trying to study something under conditions in which it will, you know, it, it isn't as likely to appear as it will in these other kinds of ones. Same thing like sort of with, you know, UFO sightings and things of that sort, you know. Uh, um, these sorts of things happen within a particular context, and they're not necessarily going to happen when you take it out of that context and you you try to uh, devise you know the proper scientific uh, you know contextualization in order to you know get rid of bias and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, it's understandable that okay, the ones who want to stick to this very hard way of looking at it, they'll just well, it's, it's it it can't meet this criteria, so it mustn't exist. And that that was basically you know what was happening with nineteenth century. Um, materialism into the 20th century. It, it had a very uh, narrow, rigorous set of criteria that phenomena had to meet in order to, you know, uh, be credited with being true. And not many things could. <laughs> you know, the things that could did, but the other things. And the, many of the things that couldn't were the things that are most important to us. I mean, you can't test love in a laboratory or beauty or meaning or value at all these kinds of things. And so all those things were, were called subjective. And the real things were, you know, little billiard balls, you know, atoms hitting each other and making us feel like that. And so uh, I think more and more today we realize that this doesn't work, but still um, there's a hardcore, you know, sensibility in, in, in this kind of whatever you want, scientific kind of world where it, uh, it doesn't allow for that. Now, Jung uh, was really propelled into a deep, I'm going to call him a psychonaut, because he, he went deeply into his own mind, almost as if he were using psychedelic drugs, although there's no evidence, I think, that he did. But uh, his explorations were, I think, prompted to a large degree by the uh, emotional trauma uh, triggered by his uh, breakup with Freud. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, he certainly had a nervous breakdown, or however you want to call it. I mean, um, depending how generous you, you want to uh, talk about uh, 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 what he went through. I mean, some critics of him just say he just had a psychotic uh, episode, you know, or a psychotic breakdown for a long time. But, yeah, I mean, and, and again, this wasn't that unfamiliar within Freud's circle. I mean, um, two of Freud's uh, followers who were rejected by him committed suicide. Um, a fellow named Herbert Silverer, who actually wrote about alchemy and psychology uh, before Jung did. Um, and uh, he also wrote a paper about hypnagogia, the, the in-between state of sleeping and waking, that um, Jung read and I'm sure influenced what he later developed as active imagination. Um, and another fellow named Victor Tausk, um, he committed suicide. And then you have um, uh, Wilhelm Reich, had had a breakdown and Freud kicked him out later. So it was some, It was a really traumatic experience to be thrown out of Freud's circle. And uh, Jung, um, yeah, I mean Jung when Jung when Freud rejected him, he and he was not only rejected by Freud, he was rejected by the whole psychoanalytical community. Then you know he was a renegade and all that, and so uh, he was you know a black sheep, you know, he persona non grata. And uh, he plunged into this uh, madness. I mean, he talks about fighting off the madness for you know uh, for months and months and months. And um, he you know he slept with a loaded revolver under his pillow, and you know he'd blow his brains out when the madness got too great. And 
his descent in the unconscious, or what he calls his night sea journey, uh, started when um, he decided, well, um, okay, I'm not going to fight it off anymore. Let's see what happens when I, I let go. And that's when he you know, plunged into the world of the archetypes and collective unconscious and started to produce what we know as the Red Book. And I guess the Red Book, uh, which was only published about 10 years ago, and uh, is, is a complete documentation of, of what he went through. Uh, this episode in his life was almost entirely unknown until the publication of the Red Book. Yeah, I mean, it came out in bits and pieces. Um, he, he, he talks about it in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and in some of his lectures, and in some of his writings on mandala and things of that sort. He has some um, examples of mandalas, and he'll say it's a patient, but it's actually him you know, doing it. And he, he himself didn't know what to make of it. Um, there's a section of it uh, known as the Seven Sermons to the Dead, and this was, this was again, talk about psychic experiences. I mean, Jung, Jung was fascinated with the dead and the whole, he spoke with the dead. Uh, they came to him. He had dreams about, you know, tombs um, opening up as he walked down, you know, an avenue and things of that sort. And um, this one particular episode, uh, there was this incredible psychic tension in, in his house in Kusnacht uh, on Lake Zurich. And, you know, the, the children were uh, affected by it as well, and there were noises and bangings and all this kind of thing, and suddenly there was like, you know, a kind of bang at the door, and he opened it, and it was like, the, the, we are the dead, and we, 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 you know, we went to Jerusalem, and we did not find what we saw it, I'm paraphrasing it, and they came to him. And uh, it's sort of, it's written in this kind of um, Nietzschean, Zarathustra kind of mock biblical kind of language that... Um, it depends how, again, how generous you want to be. I mean, uh, Jung himself said this is this is the way the archetypes speak. They they spoke in this kind of really bombastic kind of language. Um, and but it is it's all it's it's so he 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 published that um, and he sent copies to people like Hermann Hesse and others. And he didn't quite know what to make of it. He and the other thing too is if you look at the Red Book. I mean, Jung went on and on about how he wasn't an artist. He he, he was discovering these things. He wasn't creating them. Uh, but, you know, all you have to do is look at a few pages of the Red Book and you see, well, uh, uh, along with everything else you are, Carl, you're, actually, uh, you're obviously an artist, you know, because you, you, you have these wonderful watercolors, you know, page after page after page, and then the script is in this wonderful, you know, calligraphy. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an illuminated manuscript. Uh, but he tells the story that, no, he, he sort of rejected the idea, his anima was suggesting to him that this was art and no, 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 I'm a scientist and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, again, it doesn't, I personally don't care whether he's a scientist or not. I, I, what he came up with is fascinating, and it actually, you know, tells us a lot about our, our inner world. So, um, you know, for his own career, I think he he felt like he needed to emphasize that. Um, but it, I, I don't think it's necessary to appreciate, you know, what, what, what he's given us. Well, you point out that uh, the origin of many uh, of his later theories came out of that uh, plunge he took into the depths of his own psyche. Well, that's what he said at, at, at Memories, Dreams, and Reflection. He said at everything I, I developed you know, later on, my whole psychology came, came from these experiences. And he tells the story of how he finally stops trying to fight off the madness, he lets himself plunge, and he finds himself in this dark uh, kind of underworld, and it's like he's walking through a stream, and he sees a, a giant scarab, and then this kind of, um, a kind of uh, young man's head, and you know, all, all these variety of different sorts of, I mean, and, and then leading up to that, he had what led him to think that he was going insane. He had all these sort of waking dreams where he would suddenly find himself uh, in a visionary state. And this, uh, he tells the story of when he's on the train, uh, I think it's between uh, uh, Zurich and Schaffenhausen or somewhere like that. And he looks out the window on the train and he has this vision of like a, a tidal wave, you know, coming across the continent. And it's just, you know, de debris and, and destruction and all this sort of thing. And um, this happens quite a few times. And <laughs> he's actually relieved, ironically, he's relieved later on when he, when he realizes, oh, no, that's not about me going insane because this is just before the start of World War One. So World War One starts. And so he was kind of having a precognitive vision of that happening. And he wasn't, wasn't alone. They're actually... Quite a few other people at the time, uh, uh, the same thing happening to them. Uh, but when he forgot, when, when he stopped fighting off the madness and he plunged, he found himself within his psyche, as it were. And he, he had encounters with p entities, beings that lived there. You know, one was Elijah, 
uh, Salome from from the uh, from the Bible, and one of the you know the one one that he writes about quite quite a bit was uh, with the character that he later called his inner guru that he named Philemon, and um, he was a bearded uh, character with wings. And what Philemon told him is that your problem is that you think your thoughts are yours. You think you own your thoughts, uh, but you don't. Your thoughts are like the animals and the plants in the forest. And you, you are one of those animals and plants in the forest. You share this inner forest with them as well. And there's a phrase that I prefer to the collective unconscious. He talks about the objective psyche, um, which means there are things in our mind that have nothing to do with us personally. They're, they're not about, you know, there's our personal unconscious is kind of like the first level. And then when you get deeper, you, you enter this other... It's collective in the sense that we all share it, but it's not like one mind kind of thing. That, that, I think that's one of the problems with the collective unconscious is sort of the sense that we're all one mind, and it's not quite what he means. He means something that's available and shared by all of us, um, but it's objective. It's, it's not about me personally. It's, it's this other dimension of reality that I can enter into you know, through, through, through my mind. I'm under the impression that this is sort of what William James was also getting at when he wrote about a pluralistic universe. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, these, these I, I think um, quite a few have had similar experience. Uh, I mean, uh, Aldous Huxley talked about mind at large, you know, it was another kind of phrase. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's not, again, the visions you have tend to be personalized, so you, Emanuel Swedenborg, he too entered into these deeper realms. I mean, in fact, Swedenborg's dream, dream diaries predate, you know, Jung and Freud by, you know, a good almost two centuries. And uh, they're absolutely fascinating. And his interpretation of his dreams are, you know, a precursors in many ways to what, what they were doing. And he said that we enter into the spiritual realms through our own minds uh, first, but he went to heaven and hell. But that was kind of the, the context that he worked in. That was sort of the mythic language that he had, or, or the angels took him, you know, he also went to other planets. Or Rudolf Steiner read the Akashic Record, and he was sort of working within this theosophical uh, kind of narrative. Um, and then you have people like Henri Corbin, who knew Jung, and who participated in the Eranos um, uh, conferences uh, in Switzerland. And he too, he was working in this sort of Persian uh, mystical context. So um, in a way, it's the same terrain, but it appears to each of us differently um, because of our own kind of personal context in which we enter it. Now, since you bring up Rudolf Steiner, I think it's interesting. He and Jung were both in Switzerland, I believe, at the same time. Uh, as I recall, Steiner wanted to cultivate some kind of a connection with Jung, and, and Jung would have nothing to do with him, much in the way that uh, Freud rejected Jung. Uh, Jung was rejecting Steiner. Jung talks about how one of his um, students or uh, uh, a follower of his gave him some of Steiner's books to read, and he read them, and he said, this man belongs in an asylum, or something like that. So he was basically saying, you know, Freud, uh, Steiner was crazy. And, uh, I mean, I, I, again, I think, um, I'm sure Steiner would have, you know, liked to have met him, and, and w would have been very, you know, cordial and civil and had a conversation, but he also, he didn't like the idea of the unconscious. He didn't, he, he Steiner's thing was that, you know, everything should be conscious, everything should be conscious mind, that's what he talks about. His way of reading the Akashic Record was different than Madame Blavatsky, she went into a trance state and she sort of gave up her, her ego and was taken over by these powers, but he, he wanted to be a conscious explorer in them, so he developed a kind of uh, rigorous mental process while you could enter the... But the, what they have in common, all three of these, uh, Jung, Steiner, Swedenborg, is that they were all um, practiced hypnagogists. Uh, I mentioned hypnagogia before, and I uh, talked, uh, briefly mentioned Herbert Silberer. All three of them were very adept at entering this kind of in-between state. Uh, apparently, Swedenborg could stay in it for hours on end, and that's when he took, went on his journeys to heaven and hell. But all three of them were able to enter into this, into this kind of state. And it's a strange state where you can get both um, sort of dream material comes up, sort of fantasy material, but at the same time, it, it can be actual cognitive, where you're actually, you know, learning something true. And I guess the the difficult thing is to discriminate uh, between the two. Uh, so they were again, and and Henri Corbin, uh, he, he when he's talking about how best to try to enter into these these sort of states, he says, "Well, we, we really need to explore this in between state between sleeping and waking." So that seems to be kind of the the royal road, as it were, in, into this deeper parts of the mind. And you can watch the unconscious at work. And, and one of the things that uh, 
Silberer discovered was that the images and the voices, because it's auditory as well, they're self-symbolic. Um, they, they're symbolic of either your mental state, your emotional state, or your physical state, or what, something you were thinking about at the time. So it's a kind of reflection back onto your own processes. And you can see that happening in, in uh, Jung, certainly, because um, he sees the unconscious as, as an intelligent um, entity of some kind that, that makes intelligent comments about, about our lives. Mm-hmm. Now, you spoke earlier about Jung's vision uh, while he was riding a train where he saw Europe just sort of flooded with blood. And uh, uh, he thought initially this was something having to do with his own personal psychological dynamics. And after carefully examining himself, he eventually concluded, no, it was a, a precognitive vision of what was about to emerge in Europe. I know later on in, I think, about 1933, he published an essay in which he predicted the Second World War because he noticed images of the German war god Wotan sort of rising up in the dreams of his German patients. And he felt that this was uh, a, a significant sign that the, uh, the archetype of the war god was emerging in the, in the German psyche. Well, certainly, yeah, that's what he said had happened with uh, Nazi Germany. This is how Hitler... Uh, came to power uh, so uh, remarkably was that um, he was basically writing the archetype. Um, he was kind of the, the the voice for the archetype, and the archetype was was taking over. And this was the blonde beast. Uh, Nietzsche talk, talked about the, that that as well. And um, I, I guess I guess Jung was saying that um, what had happened is that the German soul. And again, this is where he gets into touchy territory because he talks about the German soul is younger than the, the, the Aryan soul is younger than the Jewish soul and all this kind of thing and it wasn't the best time to talk about those kinds of things but again he was saying well I'm, I'm just doing science here this has got nothing to do with politics this is just pure science uh, but um, it, it, it hadn't been tamed you know it, it wasn't tamed it wasn't Christianized that uh, had you know Christianity had just basically pushed a lot of that stuff aside and uh, it was building up and building up, and eventually it would have to be released. And the sort of thing that if you don't, um, if you don't make a place or a way for the unconscious, the archetypes to come out consciously, um, you know, creatively, where you participate with them, they're going to come out anyway. And it's not always nice the way they come out. You know, uh, they erupt. And this is what he was saying was what, what happened in in uh, Nazi Germany, where the yeah the, the ancient god Wotan. Uh, had had come back, uh, you know, uh, just hammer and tongs, as it were, and and took over. Although I think he got again, some people sort of basically criticized him for saying like, oh well, that kind of lets everybody off the hook, as you can kind of say the archetype made me do it, you know, sort of, you know, it, uh, I, I'm I'm not personally responsible for you know joining the party and whatever it is you did, you know, the archetypes did it, that kind of thing. But that's not really what he was saying. But he was trying to understand. And Jung had it later on, you know, when he wrote. Um, towards the end of his life, when he wrote about um, UFOs, uh, he saw the UFO phenomena had started, I mean, depending on who you look at it, this is something that's been throughout human history in different forms, Uh, but in the modern context, it starts in the late 40s. Um, But the flying saucers were these kind of mandalas from outer space. They were sort of visionary projections of the unconscious um, trying to uh, rectify the schizoid split that had happened with the Cold War, with the you know the America and, and Russia uh, getting ready to go to nuclear war. Then and somehow, so the the collective mind was projecting these kind of images of wholeness out there. So Jung you know, always had a feeling that you know these archetypes work on large scale, kind of historical sorts of things. And he, towards the end of his life, he's talking about the age of Aquarius and things of that sort. I suppose we really need to touch on the theory of synchronicity as well, because when it comes to uh, esoteric culture, that may be Jung's major contribution. Uh, well, certainly, he certainly coined uh, a, a useful term uh, for what we, you know, usually think of as meaningful coincidence. Where, well, I mean, the simplest way for me to understand synchronicity: there's something going on in your head and something going out on the outside world, and they're that they're related through meaning. They have to have an indubitable, immediate, and powerful kind of uh, impact on you. And it's as if, who knows that I'm thinking this, and how, how could they possibly put that, you know, precisely the right thing right there uh, at, you know, the time for me to, me to experience it. But Jung, it kind of becomes a one-size-fits-all term for Jung to sort of explain 
all paranormal, you know, kind of uh, phenomena. Uh, and he did that book with Wolfgang Pauli. And, and Hitton, Pauli himself was someone, you know, uh, synchronicities happened around all the time. And uh, there's all the whole story about the Pauli effect where, you know, he would, he would, uh, and he was a deeply troubled individual and he would, you know, come into laboratories and, you know, the beakers would explode and things like that. And, you know, there, there were even people when they knew he was coming, they would close down <laughs> the lab or something so he didn't walk through and break anything. But, um, no, Jung was, again, he was trying to, trying to give a scientific basis for something that, you know, we've, We've mm-hmm. all experienced it in our lives, and people have recorded it before then. I mean, one of the things that I've, since reading Jung, and uh, I've, I've, I have notebooks full of, you know, these synchronicities where they just happen, and you can't, I mean, you can talk about quantum physics as much as you want, I just don't understand how they, how that, that may, that may be the physical medium by which these things can take place, but the meaningful aspect of it uh, is something that, that's very, very different, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's what, I think that's the thing that distinguishes some radical coincidence to a synchronicity because it always seems to have some kind of meaning content for you. It's some, it's a commentary, just like dreams are a commentary on your life. The synchronicities are a commentary as well. Well, and, and it's been a very influential concept. Jung also suggested that the the principle behind synchronicities was also uh, responsible for the success of uh, divination systems like the I Ching, and I suppose he would extend that to astrology as well. Yeah, well, it's, I think behind it is this idea of the unus mundus, like the one world. So, I mean, in one, in one sense, everything is a symbol of everything else. If, if, if you know how to read it, um, the, you know, the, you take a cup and the rest of the universe kind of, you know, expands from that cup. And uh, if you know how to read it, you can see, you know, other, the meanings of other things there. And, uh, yes, this was something, again, this goes back, he, he traces it back to Neoplatonism uh, and, and, and the whole idea of the anima mundi and this kind of the soul of the world, that this, um, what do you want to call it, this, this kind of uh, connection that everything has connected to everything else, you know, this kind of living, living world. And uh, you can start to see experience as something to be read. You know, it, uh, again, it, it, and this is something that's interesting to me because it moves away from the scientific, uh, not to say we shouldn't do this, but the scientific way of looking at this to more of a narrative kind of way. There's a story there. So rather than like, oh, what makes this tick? Uh, where is this story going? What, what's, you know, what, what's the meaning of this tale now? So you can, and this, and this takes us back to, you know, Kabbalah, you know, a variety of different esoteric, uh, ways of looking at the world where it's speaking to us in some way, you know, or all the phenomena speaking to us in some way. And synchronicity is a way you can, you can read that. And it's, it's telling you something rather than, oh, what, what is making, what's the stuff or the mechanism that's making this happen? What, and you can say, well, actually, what is it trying to tell me? And this is something that people of an earlier time uh, had more, you know, uh, felt more attuned with and with the rise of, you know, rationality and all of that in the uh, late, um, uh, se- uh, late 17th century and all that, we kind of put that out of the way as superstition. Um, and, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't go away. You know, it, it's there. Uh, it, it's part of us. I think one of Jung's most important books is Modern Man in Search of a Soul, where where he really uh, complains about the uh, sterileness of, of modern life in terms of people being out of touch with their inner depths. Well, this is it. I mean, Modern Man, in order to achieve the kind of mastery of, uh, if that's what you want to call it, of, of, of uh, the planet that, that we have, we, we had to sort of put that other way of being in the world aside. We had to marginalize it. Um, you know, in, in, in order to understand uh, the laws of, you know, planetary motion, we had to kick the angels, you know, off the stars. Uh, and, and that, I would say, and Jung himself, even though he goes on about the great hubris of rational, rational man and all that, he would say, but, you know, we, we don't want to jettison that. You know, we need science and we need all that. That's part, part of us, but we need to bring in the other as well. Uh, I mean, and that, that's that's one. If, and, and I don't know if you uh, you know the film um, uh, The Petrified Forest, uh, an early film uh, with uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart. Um, but um, uh, one of the characters in that is uh, uh, he's sort of wandering out in the desert, and he has a copy of Modern Man in Search of His Soul with him. So that that's a very early kind of um, um, appearance of Jung in popular culture. He wasn't quite. And this is a film from the '30s. He wasn't quite. As, as part of that kind of uh, scene then as well. But, you know, this is something, he, he felt a great modern man, you know, enlightenment man, rational man, 
uh, for all his achievements, uh, there was a great hubris, um, you know, where we, we basically think we're the, as you said earlier, we think we're the complete masters of ourselves, but there are other forces, other powers uh, that we can, we can reach an arrangement with. And if we don't do that, then they will be just pushing us around. I mean, that was the whole idea. We can reach an arrangement with them and, and actively participate with them. Uh, but if you don't do that, they're going to come and, you know, uh, do what they need to do anyway. Yeah, well, it was, it was to me, a, a, an important book in, in my own growth. Actually, many of Jung's books have been. Another uh, really crucial uh, book of his, I think, is uh, called, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Aeon, in, in which he takes the ages of astrology and uh, endeavors to apply them to the development of uh, eras of civilization. Yeah, I mean, he takes the, the notion of the precession of the equinox. Um, we have, uh, you know, the well. This is again bringing us to the age of Aquarius, which, uh, depending on what system you use, is, uh, you know, we're either in it already or it's it's about to come or something like that. And that was preceded by the age of Pisces, and and uh, I guess I think it was Taurus before then, and so on and so on. And he kind of he lines up the the archetypes. So he kind of talks about the precession of the archetypes. And so where there's there's changes in the Platonic year. Um, but there's also changes in the inner, you know, it, inner astronomy, you could say. Um, and you know, Jung was very, you know, he, he was very much a devotee of astrology. He, you know, he talks about how he uh, either did the chart himself of some of his patients or he had them done. And um, again, that's a synchronistic phenomena. You know, it's not so much that the stars are actually making position of the stars and making things happen, but they're, they're, there's parallels between them, you know, uh, between your character and, and them, and you can, if you know how to read them, you can you can learn something about that. Um, but yeah, this is where he's 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 talking about again. He took this is I forget exactly when that book came out, but it's a later book. Uh, but even as early as the forties, he's talking in letters. He's talking about the age of Aquarius and that kind of thing, and he kind of comes out in the open in that book too, um, where he's saying how this is the, the changes taking place in the psyche that are you know seem to indicate you know a, a, a massive change in and human history and all that sort of thing. And again, I, I mentioned the UFO book was another example of that. So you imply in your book that the the great burgeoning of what we might call New Age culture in the 1960s, the human potential movement and uh, sort of an occult explosion of uh, that you've written about in some of your other earlier books, that Jung was very much a um, precursor of uh, and an anticipator of that whole development. Well, I think he was certainly talking about it um, before it became, you know, very, very popular. And when the, the occult revival in the 1960s happened, um, that going the early 60s, but by the mid-60s, you know, the most famous people in the world, the Beatles, were, were, were deep into it. He was someone everyone was referring to. Um, you know, the I Ching became, you know, that, that uh, edition of uh, Richard, uh, Richard Wilhelm's um, translation of the I Ching, with Jung's introduction, that became something that, you know, everyone had. And he also, you know, he helped introduce um, the variety of different Eastern teachings, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, he, he wrote about D.T. Suzuki's books on Zen um, and things of that. And the the, uh, uh, the Secret of the Golden Flower, which is a you know a, a Chinese alchemical text. And in, in his introduction to that, that's one of the places where he talks most clearly about his um, practice of active imagination, where you consciously start a sign of dialogue. Uh, with the unconscious, and so no, he was very much um, you know someone who was, and again he's writing about flying saucers. So um, he was certainly someone who was, uh, although his standing in the academic world wasn't as you know uh, prestigious as Freud's, I'd say, or other you know by that time other psychologists. He was certainly considered to be you know an important intellectual figure, and so he was kind of giving his imprimatur on these things that had been marginalized. And um, again, he, he may not have been picked up by all the mainstream intellectuals, but the grassroots, you know, um, uh, popular culture certainly picked up on it. I'm particularly impressed by the work he did with uh, Wolfgang Pauli, who was a Nobel laureate physicist. Uh, Pauli uh, was using his own dreams to explore uh, the the very significant philosophical question of the mind-matter interaction, and his dreams revealed to him some what I think of as some rather profound uh, answers to that uh, mystery. Well, this was something that um, Jung uh, labored out too. Trying to, he talked about something that was psychoid, 
that had a, um, a psychic side to it, but also a physical side. And there was some, you know, way in which it participated in both things. And this is something we find difficult to um, grasp or, or to conceptualize, because certainly, you know, uh, since Descartes, where Descartes talks about, you know, their, uh, you know, basically mental things and physical things out there. And uh, he and other people, Swedenborg, are trying to find, well, where's, where's the place where they meet? You know, they, they seem radically different, but, you know, where, where do they come together and how do you get one from the other? You know, okay, neurons are associated with thought, but a thought and a neuron isn't the same thing. And so it, it's sort of how we conceptualize it maybe more of the problem and actually trying to find some way to, you know, some, some uh, borderline where they both come together. But, uh, yeah, I mean, synchronicity would be something where you have um, a mental or a psychic kind of process that exteriorized, it, you know, it, 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 it expressed itself in an outer physical kind of way. Um, and it certainly jumps the, you know, jumps the, the fence between, you know, both of these kinds of places. And I guess, too, this is something, you know, quantum physics come in that because the more and more you go into, uh, you know, the deeper into matter, it, it isn't matter anymore. You know, the whole 19th century idea of little tiny billiard balls banging against each other's atoms. Well, that went out the window with, the, you know, when, with quantum and all that. And suddenly it's, uh, it's nothing like anything. You can't even visualize it in any way. We, we make nice little pictures of it in order for us to understand it. But when you get down to the actual level, it's not, it's not like that at all. And it, it becomes something that's much more uh, like thought. I mean, even earlier, you know, um, someone like, uh, I think, James Jeans um, in the early 20th century, he was saying, you know, the stuff of the universe seems to be much more of a mental stuff. Than, than any kind of you know phys physical kind of stuff. Yeah, I think he said the universe is more like a great story than a great mechanism. Well, there you go. I mean, that's that's uh, I, that, that that to me is a, a, seems a fruitful way to look at it, and that takes us back to much earlier mythical kinds of kinds of way. You know. Well, before we conclude our discussion about Jung, I guess we ought to also point out that he went to great lengths to try to integrate uh, esoteric thinking into psychology by emphasizing Gnosticism and alchemy. He says he was trying to find a historical parallel to what he was doing. Um, he somehow felt that... Um, he, he somehow felt if, if he's come across this, there must be examples of it in the past. There's, and the first thing he tried to uh, find a connection with was Gnosticism. And uh, for some reason, that didn't work for him. Uh, uh, he says it was too difficult to make, make the connection. But then, well, it was the synchronicity itself that uh, took place when he turned his mind towards alchemy because um, he was sent this uh, book, The Secret of the Golden Flower, that Richard Wilhelm had, had translated as a Chinese alchemical text and he sent it to Jung and Jung said this arrived at the at the same moment that I was just starting to think about alchemy as you know a way to enter into this and what he fundamentally says is the alchemists were doing what he called active imagination uh, but they didn't know that's what they were doing you know and so they were projecting unconscious processes out into the you know the the, the physical matter they were dealing with and the operations they were dealing with and all of the strange language and symbols and iconography and uh, you know images that the alchem alchemists worked with uh, were expressions of these unconscious processes that they were sort of projecting out and uh, and I mean people that practice actually hard alchemy you know uh, they say well no this is it's actually you know it has something to do with the real physical stuff it isn't just a projection and all that so I think there's you know, he's, he's got a lot of criticism from that, and there, there are two camps. And um, and again, you can see, well, isn't that an example of this trying to bridge the matter-mind uh, kind of boundary? Because um, there's some you know, Jungian thinkers about alchemy are saying, no, it's a projection of the unconscious mind onto this stuff. And you have the alchemist saying, no, it's got nothing to do with that. It's real, you know, changes, transformations taking place in matter. Well, again, they seem to be on opposite sides of this thing that Jung was trying to bridge over. Um, but that's fundamentally what, what he said, is that they, they, were, they were engaging in this practice where they were developing a dialogue with the unconscious, but they were using the language of physical matter, and also it was a Christian language, because many of the alchemists were you know, very devout Christians and all that. And I suppose uh, it's, we ought to bring up the fact that in our earlier discussion of the Hermetic tradition, uh, we pointed out that uh, alchemy really was closely associated with that tradition, which did have a lot to do with uh, exploring the uh, evolution of the soul itself. 
Oh, it's true. It's true. I mean, um, it's 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 a kind of later development. I mean, the, well, one of the things is there isn't there isn't any mention of alchemy in in what's known as the Corpus Hermeticum. I mean, the the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, which is probably the most famous alchemical uh, tract. Uh, it's not part of this collection of texts from sort of, sort of the second um, century in the Christian era. Uh, that is, you know, sort of the fundamental uh, basis for the Hermetic teaching. It's something that comes up six, seven century later, and it's um, it's in a it's it's there, there, there's no Greek original ever, ever found. Uh, so it's not to say there weren't alch- alchemy was around at the same time and they knew of each other, but it didn't sort of take on um, uh, it didn't sort of it didn't take on sort of the prestige of being the Hermetic art. Um, you know, until later on, and then it was like retranslated back into Europe in, in the Middle Ages and that kind of thing. So, I mean, the early Hermetic teaching is much more about something that we call cosmic consciousness. It was, it was something about, although I think, I, I think, and I, I was surprised, and I gave a talk about this uh, quite some time ago, that Jung actually didn't didn't sort of see the the Hermetic journey through the planets, which is uh, similarly the Gnostics did this as well. You know, to get back to the source. Uh, you have to journey back through the planets, and um, there's a, certainly a way you can read that as, as similarly to getting, you know, to the unconscious and going through the same kind of processes. And he doesn't seem to have seen that that was there, um, and that I, I found that a little surprising. Well, Gary Lockman, this has been a fascinating discussion as always. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I know uh, Jung's work is is so rich and complex and ongoing. It's really a living tradition with many modern interpreters as as well. We <laughs> we could talk on and on and on for years about Jung, but I think this has been a very good overview, so especially of the mystical side. Uh, so thank you very much for being with me. Well, absolutely, my pleasure. And, and you're right. I mean, one conversation can't can't cover um, can, can only cover a fraction of Jung's ideas. And so, uh, I'm glad that we had an opportunity to do that. I I think this was a very credible look at uh, this side of Jung's work, uh, Gary. Once again, thank you. 